things. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Our psalm today is uh, from Psalm 55. But I call to God, and the Lord will save me. He redeems my soul in safety from the battle that I wage, for many are arrayed against me. My companions stretch out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. Cast your burden on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Word of the Lord. Where's Letty? There he is. <laughs> Thank you, Letty. Lord, teach us to pray, and as we pray, transform our hearts, our minds, and our wills. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit into our hearts to direct and rule us according to your will, and to comfort us in all our afflictions, to defend us from all error, and to lead us into all truth. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 
Please respond to my invitation, Lord, in your mercy, with hear our prayer. Lord, in your mercy, let us pray for the church and the world. Grant, Almighty God, that all those who confess your name may be united in your truth, live together in your love, and reveal your glory in the world. Please pray for our bishops, for our priests, Ken and Grady, and for Pastor Todd, for our Anglican network in Canada, particularly the St. Brigade of Kildare Medway Church in Massachusetts and All Saints Rutland, Vermont. In our North Shore community, we especially remember this morning Westland Baptist and Westside North Shore Church. We pray for our sister church in Kadua, Rwanda, for Pastor Felicien and for Bishop Asiel. Lord, in your mercy, Guide the people of this land and of all the nations in the ways of justice and peace, that we may honor one another and serve the common good. We pray for the Queen and all the royal family, for our Prime Minister and all elected officials, for our armed forces, police forces, and emergency services personnel. Lord, in your mercy. Lord, we thank you for your creation and pray that we may use its resources rightly in the service of others and to your honor and glory. Lord, in your mercy. Bless all whose lives are closely linked with ours and grant that we may serve Christ in them and love one another as he loves us. Pray for the people in our neighborhood around Sutherland that many of them will come to faith in Christ. In our St. Timothy's prayer cycle, we remember especially this morning Peter and Audrey Haig and Marilyn Jacobson. And we thank Alan and Suzanne Wilson for the flowers this morning in their celebration of their 51st wedding anniversary. Lord, in your mercy, Father, for both our congregations meeting this morning, we pray for the leadership of those congregations as they seek fresh vision from you. And from St. Timothy's, we pray for Julia, for Silas, and for Chris. We ask that you would give them strength and health and encouragement and a real tangible presence, uh, a tangible sense of your presence, we ask, in their lives. We thank you, Father, that the wildfires in California are largely under control. For Sutherland, we pray for Mary and Dean recovering from her heart attack. We're thankful that she came home from the hospital yesterday. We pray, Father, for continued healing for her. We pray for the ministry of Himalayan life. We thank you that Daniel is back in Vancouver, and uh, we look forward to seeing him. We pray for this, uh, the upcoming film on Thursday night that will talk about the ministry of that, uh, of that great work. We pray also for John Van Hoostraten, who has uh, some health issues, appointments coming up. We pray for wisdom for the doctors and healing for him. 
And Lord, we pray for our gathering this morning. What a privilege it is uh, to bring these two groups together. And we recognize that we have so much in common. And first and foremost in common is our love of Jesus Christ and the impact that he has had in our lives. We pray for the hearing of the word this morning. We thank you that Carolyn is with us. And we know, Father, you will speak through her to us. So we pray, Father, that our hearts will be open to what it is you have to say to us this morning. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And the children can now head to their classes. Thank you. Good morning. I'm Carolyn. Uh, It is so good to be with you. I've had really a splendid time here this weekend with some of you, and uh, it's great to meet the rest of you. Uh, what we've been doing, as, as uh, has been mentioned, is uh, trying to wake ourselves up to the riches of the Lord's Prayer. This prayer that when uh, Jesus' friends had been with him for three years and they started to figure out that there was something about prayer that was had something to do with the secret of the universe, they came to Jesus and they said, teach us everything you know about prayer. And he gave them the, what we call the Lord's Prayer, which is only 57 words in the original Greek. And uh, what we were doing over the weekend uh, is, you know, some people like me kind of grew up, I'm actually old enough that I remember saying the Lord's Prayer in public school and uh, then singing God Save the Queen in O Canada. And it was just sort of this kind of ritualistic, uh, wooden kind of thing that I did. And, and in case any of you have had that kind of relationship with the Lord's Prayer, the project that we've had is, is uh, uh, waking ourselves up to everything that Jesus offers in this prayer. And uh, a quick recap, if you weren't here, this is the uh, two-minute recap of something that took us two days, so put your seatbelt on. Uh, but we talked about the fact that this, this prayer is such a gift to us uh, in at least three ways. First of all, it, it provides a kind of roadmap uh, when we begin to pray, Jesus gives us words to pray that guide us from the way we're thinking about whatever's going on in our lives to the way God is thinking about whatever's going on in our lives. Uh, it doesn't um, uh, dismiss our concerns or the, our, the chaos that's inside of us or in, in the world, but it puts it in the context of the way God sees the world. It dignifies our structure and contextualizes it. The second way that it's a gift is it's kind of a window into... God's own heart. It's like if you ever wonder what makes God's heart race, what God really cares about in the world, Jesus tells us. He says these are the things that God is actually passionate about, the hallowing of his name, the coming of his kingdom, his will being done, that we would have the bread and the things that we need to live each day, that we would be fully forgiven and learn how to forgive each other, and that we would be delivered from evil. That's what God cares about. And so the Lord's Prayer is this gift to us because it it shows us God's own heart and kind of how Jesus understood human existence, how he understands it now. Uh, So it's a huge gift to us in that way. The third way it's it's a gift to us is it's uh, what we were calling an invitation to causality. Pascal said that God gives us the dignity of causality. And what that means is that somehow what we do and our prayers make a difference in what happens in our lives and in the cosmos. We don't really get how this works. It's very mysterious. But Jesus, in teaching us to pray this prayer, is telling us that our prayers actually make a difference, that somehow we get to participate in his ongoing project of restoring and redeeming all things. So it's 
actually quite exciting. So the prayer is a, is a gift to us in at least those three ways. It's also, we should just take a moment and just, uh, and this is what we try to do this weekend, just kind of admire uh, how smart Jesus is, how eloquent Jesus is, how good he is, that in 57 words, this brief, brief prayer, this simple prayer, it's just an invocation, our Father who art in heaven, six petitions and a doxology. In this simple prayer, he can kind of cover all of human experience and everything that's going on in the cosmos. It covers the past, our need for forgiveness. It covers the present, our need for sustenance. It covers the future, our need for deliverance. Uh, uh, it covers the physical, again, our need for bread. The spiritual, our need to be in relationship with God and to see him for who he is. And the relational, our need to forgive each other and be forgiven. I mean, it's, it's just super brilliant. And then it, and then he also teaches us to pray it really confidently. All the verbs are in the imperative. It's kind of bossy so that in some of the literatures we say, you know, Lord, as you have taught us to be so bold, we will pray this. Um, so it's just, it's just, uh, it's a, a brilliant gift to us, um, from the heart of God himself. And so, as we worked through the week and we got through five of the petitions, the first petition is for the hallowing of his name, which we came to see if we hadn't seen it already as praying that he, his character would be revealed, that people would actually see how good and how beautiful and how loving God is right here on earth the way they see it in heaven. And then the praying for the coming of his kingdom, his kingdom is the realm where what God, what the king wants done is done. So the, the place where there's justice and beauty and truth, Jesus taught us to pray that that heavenly kingdom would break into earthly reality and start to push, push up and break apart earthly kingdoms, and that we would pray that it would break in deeper and deeper into us and into the world, so that all of us who have said yes to Jesus can walk around as little portals of the kingdom, helping his earthly kingdom to break in at deeper and deeper levels. And so then we have to pray that his will would be done that we would move from a place of, of willfulness to willingness and cooperate with his will being done on earth. He teaches us to pray for daily bread, for what we need to, to live. And he teaches us to pray for forgiveness and that he would do it at work in our heart where we could forgive uh, each other. So that's where we've been. And then that lands us at petition six. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's look at the first part of this first. Lead us not into temptation. Now, if you don't know this already, this little phrase that Jesus taught us to preach has given interpreters, theologians, commentators more fits than you can imagine. What does this mean? Why, why would God lead us into temptation? There seems to be an implication here that God might lead us into temptation. And Jesus is teaching us to pray that he wouldn't. Well, would, would God do that? Would God purposely ensnare us, try to get us to do bad things. Isn't that like a perjury trap or something like that? That doesn't seem good. So we need to work with this. And, and, and I invite you, if it catches your attention, to read a bunch of commentators on it. They all have kind of different takes on it. Um, the, the take that kind of makes me smile the most is Eugene Peterson's, who says, this is tough and there's a, there seems to be a contradiction there. Live with it. God is God and you're not. That's, uh, that's Peterson's word to us. Um, I find that, I find that funny, but not maybe the most helpful. Um, so the, the one that, um, that I want to share with you comes from Daryl Johnson. So some of you know, know Daryl Johnson. He, I think he's really, really helpful with this. And what Daryl does is he reminds us that this word temptation, 
uh, comes from this Greek word parasmos, or para, yeah, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, parasmos, I think, which can actually be interpreted two different ways, and it is interpreted two different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes, depending on the context, when you see this word parasmos, it's um, interpreted to mean test, like a test like the way you would test metal to refine it uh, into gold. You would get rid of the impurities, and you would test something and make it pure and, and, and know that it was going to hold up. Um, so in that idea of a test, you're both sort of seeing if it will hold up and also doing processes to it that will allow it to hold up. So that's one way the word can be interpreted. Then the other way that the word can be interpreted, and it sometimes is in the New Testament, depending on the context, is uh, a temptation, being tempted to sin, being tempted to turn away uh, from God. So we know on the test side, like it or not, that God does seem to use the circumstances and difficulties of our lives as a testing kind of process, as a refining kind of process, as a growing us up kind of um, process. There doesn't seem to be any doubt about this. And we see it in the life of Jesus himself, right? Matthew 4, 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, tested by the devil. I remember Ross Hastings at Regent College saying, whenever he reads that, then Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tested. He always remembers when he was a kid and he needed to get his tonsils out, being led into the hospital with promises of ice cream. Uh, but this sort of ominous uh, future ahead. Well, Jesus is being led uh, into the wilderness for something that apparently is going to be important in his life and ministry and his relationship with his father, but isn't going to be uh, very fun. Uh, and I've always thought of that time of testing. You know, it's right after Jesus uh, is about to begin his public ministry. He gets baptized. He comes out of the water, and a dove descends on him. And the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's this beautiful moment, and you expect him to go right into his, his ministry. But instead, there's this interlude, this testing interlude, uh, when he gets led out into the into the wilderness. And I've always thought of that as this, like, harsh time in which Jesus needs to become a superhero and and defeat the enemy. Uh, but I remember reading in a book by Jonathan Martin that there was as much gift as there was trial in that time in the wilderness for Jesus. Um, if I can read you a bit from that, he says, even though Jesus' experience in the wilderness wasn't easy, the, the devil was not the only one he encountered there. The Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness, rejuvenated with the affirmation of his identity in God's eyes. He'd just been reminded that he was God's beloved. And allowed him to step away from his day-to-day life until the noise and the hurry of the world around him was stripped down to the point where he could easily distinguish the voice of the accuser from the voice of the Father. And the same can be true for us. We see, so we see how a test works in Jesus' life. It's this chance to strip everything away, make sure he can recognize the voice of the Father. And that's how tests are meant to work in our lives. I don't know if every test we encounter is something that God is engineering for us or leading us into. I just know he uses the tests of our lives, however that works, to refine us if we'll let him. And they actually can be good gifts from a good father. Hard gifts. It's C.S. Lewis who says something like, I I never understand when people say, I'm not afraid of God because I know he is good. Lewis says, have they never even been to the dentist? Right? Some of what is good for us is really hard. 
And I've been thinking about this a lot. Some of you know we've, our family's just been through a, a really long, difficult health battle with my mom, and she's now gone home to glory, and we have her, her celebration of life tomorrow. And so this stuff is very fresh on my heart. And um, I've been watching my daughter. Our daughter, my husband Mark's here, and our daughter Beth is 17. And uh, Beth was quite an anxious kid and had this kind of fright or flight response to stressful situations usually when she was younger it would sometimes be dangerous because if she sent danger sensed danger somewhere she would run off by herself and we'd be like no stay with us when you sense danger we just lost this there we go she used to be um very troubled by stressful situations and medical situations but she really loves her grandma and while my mom has been uh in a kind of a long hospital journey Beth's love for her grandma has made her come into this place of testing where difficult things are happening. And she has morphed into this kid who was the only one who could get my mom to take her medicine, the only one who could cheer her up, give her the calming words. And the nurses would say, this kid has to be a nurse. Like, this kid is amazing in these situations. When the rest of us were blubbering, she was the one who was calm and knew what to do. And and when when she was being exposed to all this sort of medical trouble, I was thinking, this is going to be too much for this kid. This is going to break this kid down. But it has refined her. And for the rest of her life, she is going to have resources and, and ways of helping people in crisis, this testing, that if I had tried to spare her from this testing, she wouldn't have grown up the way that she is growing up. If, if Mark and I had tried to protect her from it, uh, she wouldn't be the person that she is now for the rest of her life. And there is some kind of dynamic like this going on, I think, with this idea that God allows us to go uh, through tests. So... There I'm good. If the tests are important, I'm good with the parasmos there. But why does Jesus then, if the tests are good, and if this means tests, why does Jesus then teach us to pray, lead us not into temptation? And here I think this has to do with the other way that we can interpret this word parasmos. I think Jesus knows. I think we always hear in this prayer Jesus' deep empathy for us and for the human condition. And he knows that when we go through these times of testing... There is an enemy, and the enemy, sorry, I shouldn't touch this. The enemy sees in these times of testing an opportunity to turn them into times of temptation. The temptation is this: man, this stuff is really hard that you're going through. Looks like God isn't with you after all. Looks like God isn't for you after all. Looks like God can't be trusted. Good. Looks like God doesn't love you the way you thought. That's the temptation. These tests can turn into temptations, temptations that would harm us and hurt us, temptations Jesus prays that we will not be led into if we allow them to convince us that God is not with us or for us. That's why the very first petition of the Lord's Prayer is, Holy be your name. May your character be revealed. May we know that you are good and loving no matter what, even in circumstances that won't make sense until we're with you in glory. May we know that you're good so that even in these tests, even when we're having opportunities to grow up into fully functioning and flourishing human beings, may we know that you are always with us, always for us, always love us. So Daryl Johnson in his working with this, he, he translates that last petition to, Father, as you lead us into the test, do not let the test become a temptation. Do not let the evil one tell us that this test means that God is not with us and for us but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the lies of the enemy when we are tempted to believe that.
uh, C.S. Lewis again. I don't know if some of you have read Screw Tape Letters. Do you know the screw tape letters? So the, the idea is that a senior devil screw tape is writing instructions to a junior devil, Wormwood, about how to mess up a Christian's uh, life. And it's really confusing when you first read it because the, the screw tape refers to God as the enemy. So you have to, like, flip your, your paradigm. Um, but there's this wonderful letter about um, what he calls uh, undulation. He says in, in any human being's life, there's going to be un- undulation meaning times of great highs and times when we really sense closeness to God, and then the, these troughs, these, these lows, these times when God seems far away in distance. And it's so good, maybe I can read you just a, a bit of this letter because it's really helpful, I think, about how God uses tests and how we must not let them become temptations to think that God is not with us and for us. He says, humans are amphibians, half spirit and half animal. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change, for as to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, the repeated turn to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of of troughs and peaks. If you had watched your patient carefully, so this is screw screw tape writing to Wormwood. Wormwood's patient is this young Christian that Wormwood's trying to tempt. If you had watched your patient carefully, you would have seen this undulation in every department of his life, not just his religious life. His interest in his work, his affection for his friends, his physical appetites, they all go up and down. As long as he lives on earth, periods of emotional and bodily richness and liveliness will alternate with periods of numbness and poverty. The dryness and dullness through which your patient is now going are not, as you fondly suppose, your workmanship. They're not temptations. They are merely a natural phenomenon which will do us no good unless we make good use of it. That's when it would become a temptation. Now, for us, demons, to decide what the best use of it is, you must ask what use the enemy wants to make of it and then do the opposite. Now, it may surprise you to learn that in his efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs more than on the peaks. Some of his special favorites have gone through longer and deeper troughs than anyone else. The reason is this. To us, a human is primarily food. Our aim is the absorption of its will into ours, the increase of our own area of selfhood at its expense. But the obedience which the enemy, God, uh, demands of men is quite a different thing. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as we would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of little loathsome replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons and daughters. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our father below has drawn all things into himself. The enemy, God, wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And that is where the troughs, the tests, parasmos in the first sense, come in. 
You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses in any moment. Do you ever wonder that, God? Why can't I feel your presence more continuously, more clearly, more powerfully? But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will, and if he gave us his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitted degree, it would certainly do that, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves, merely to cancel them or assimilate them, will not serve. Oh, sure, he's prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. And maybe you noticed this. When you first met Jesus, there is this kind of often very strong sense of his presence. He will set them off with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation. But sooner or later, he withdraws, if not, in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs, to carry out from the will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, testing periods, parasmos again, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence, the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. We can drag our patients along by continual tempting because we design them only for the table and the more their will is interfered with, the better. But he cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. Here it is. He wants them to learn to walk and therefore must take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will, God's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks even maybe why he has been forsaken and still obeys. So, Father, when we are led into the test, when we're in a trough, when your presence is less hard to determine or we don't understand the circumstances we're in, we will not listen to the enemy who wants to turn that test into a temptation to think that God is not with us and for us and does not want want to will the very best for us. This is what I have been convinced of. The only thing that has a chance of defeating us permanently in the long timeline of eternity is if we become deceived that God is not good. That's it. If we know that God is good, then there's nothing that can be thrown at us that can't work itself out in an eternity face-to-face with the one who made us and loved us. So that's the first half of this petition. Petition, Lead us not into temptation. The second half is, but deliver us from evil. And what we just want to notice here is that this prayer is honest about evil. There is evil. Don't be surprised when awful things happen, that there is an enemy, that this is a fallen place, a broken place, a messed up place. But it's confident about deliver us. But deliver us from evil. We might translate this, we're up up against it and we need you. But here is uh, where we have to really try to capture and ask Jesus for some of his confidence about the outcome of the universe and the outcome of, of our lives. 
is very, very tempting. We've all seen enough Star Wars to think of God and Satan, good and evil, as these two equal foes locked in mortal combat, and who knows how it's going to turn out. Good versus evil, God versus Satan, life versus death. It's really tempting uh, to think of things that way, but it isn't the truth. It's not a true picture of reality. A true picture of reality is if we took all of the evil in the universe, all of the brokenness, and God knows there is a lot of it. But if we took it all and held it up next to the goodness and the love and the power and the faithfulness and the sovereignty of God and his loving plans for you and me, for his people and for his creation, all of the evil in the universe wouldn't cover the head of a pin next to the goodness of God. So this is not a battle that we don't know what, how it's going to turn out. <laughs> I, uh, I remember, I'm going to grab my guitar. I grew up at a little church called Blue Mountain Baptist in Coquitlam. And uh, about every quarter, we would have a um, uh, missionary Sunday. I don't know if you still have those around here. And we'd have missionary Sunday where some missionaries would come in off furlough. And when I was in the youth group, we really liked this. They would often wear some kind of exotic clothing. And they would have, um, we used to have this thing called a slide projector. And they would show uh, pictures of somewhere exotic and uh, and I remember when this missionary couple came in one time. I don't remember where they were from, but I remember the pictures. It was somewhere jungly and cool, somewhere that seemed exotic. And um, I'm sitting in the front row. I'm about 12. I'm sitting in the front row with the with the youth. And uh, and the husband he starts telling this story, and he says, one time in our house in the jungle, this snake came into our house. It was massive. It was bigger than a man. So we went running out of the house, and um, uh, we found a local guy who would know what to do. And the local guy said, I got this. And he went into our house with a machete. He said, so we're waiting outside. And after a while, the guy comes out, and he says, okay, it's kind of a good news, bad news situation. (laughs) The good news is the snake's a goner. He's dead. I cut his head clear off. He's been decapitated. The bad news is the way a snake's respiratory and nervous and circulatory system works, it's going to be a couple hours before he understands that he's dead. (laughs) So the missionary said, so my wife and I, we're standing out in the jungle heat waiting for this snake to understand that he's dead while while this headless snake is in our house thrashing around, knocking pictures off the wall and lamps over and spraying stuff everywhere. And I got to tell you, me with the youth in the front row, we're like, best sermon ever. (laughs) And he says, my wife and I were out there and we're waiting for this snake to get the deal and for it to be over. And all of a sudden, we look at our eyes, at each other, and our eyes get huge, and we have this mutual epiphany, and we go, oh my goodness, this is the story of the universe. There's an enemy, there's a serpent. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. He's already dead. We know where this thing is going. He just doesn't know it yet. And so, my friends, we are living in the thrashing season. We are. And for some of us, the thrashing is maybe more intense right now than other times. And if that's the case for you, I'm so sorry. It's so miserable. But we know where this thing is going. One thing about my mom, she, had, she loved to go to movies. But she, uh, 
She refused to go to a movie that had a sad ending. She figured you get enough of that in real life. You don't have to pay for it, right? So she, if she was thinking about going to a movie, she would call me and she would say, just don't give me any plot spoilers or anything, but just tell me, does it end okay? I just need to know if, it's, if it ends okay. And then if it does, I can go through whatever it's going to put me through. Well, my friends, this ends more than okay. It ends more than okay. And I can say that even as we bury my mom tomorrow. She's with him in glory. All her questions are answered. It ends really, really well. Bad day in the garden, Eve fell for the lie. Now we just keep falling one lie at a time. It seems like forever we've been under this curse. Love was here first. Now everything's broken and everything fails. We can't quite imagine that love will prevail. We've got to remember when the bad goes to worse. Love was here first. And there will be a day when the kingdom comes. to face we will know for sure love's gonna have the last word love's gonna have the last word bad day on a hillside or so it seems Love was surrendered and nailed to a tree. But the grave came up empty and death was reversed. Cause love was here first. And there will be a day.
And though we have wandered, we will find if we search. Love was here first. And there will be a Do.